So you might want to turn to the passage, but we are going to have it read out in a second. But before we, before we do that, I'm just going to um, intro things a little bit. This uh, story of Esther that we're about to have a look at, um, it is a real exciting story. It's full of drama. And also it's kind of controversial in some ways, if you have a look at it, because it's full of sex and violence. So, in some, you know, you could say it's appropriate for us, the, the Netflix generation that uh, binge on uh, these shows about uh, these sorts of things. This book was written uh, to explain uh, a Jewish festival, the festival of Purim, which was when they celebrated the time when the Hebrew people had victory over the Persian Empire who were trying to wipe them out. And it's said later in the Babylonian, uh, after the Babylonian exile period, so quite late in the Old Testament period. And what had happened was the Persian Empire had taken over the Babylonians and King Cyrus, the Persian king, had sent home the Hebrew people said, you can go home back to Jerusalem and worship and be in your own land if you want to because that place is special for you. And many went. And that's what the books of um, Ezra and Nehemiah talk about. But some, some Jewish people stayed behind. They, they got used to living in Persia and you know it, it doesn't kind of it might, might seem hard to make sense of now but you can sort of understand it if, if you'd lived there for a generation or two. So the Jews were continuing to live in this Persian city of Susa and they were living as a, a religious minority group. They hadn't followed the action going back to Jerusalem, back to Judah but they're able to work and get on with their lives. And there's four main characters in this story that we're I'm just going to pull out now. There are other characters, but these are the four leading characters. The first character is Esther, and she begins by hiding the fact that she's a Jew in this story, and she marries the tyrant Xerxes, the tyrant king of Persia, uh, and, the, and he's the king of the Medes as well. And then she grows in confidence in her time in the palace, and she grows in maturity, and she risks her life to save the Jews. One false move and she would have been banished from the empire or banished from the palace at least like the previous queen. So this is, we're going to trace her and trace him and also Mordecai, which is Esther's uncle. And Mordecai had taken in Esther when she was, because she was an orphan, young orphan girl and had taken her in. And when she ends up in in the palace, and we'll see how that all happens in a second, then um, Mordecai comes up with a plan and, and helps Esther. And then there's another character, Haman, or Harman, I think is the way the Persians say it. And uh, he is kind of like the prime minister and the chief advisor to Xerxes. And early on in the story, Mordecai refuses to bow down to Harman. And so Harman gets angry and outraged by this. And he basically orders a decree or, and gets the approval of Xerxes to perform a holocaust. Look at this bit from Chapter 3, verse 13. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so they would be ready for that day. And when it says every province, it's, it's talking about a really large area because the Persian Empire was huge. It says in, in chapter one, it goes all the way from India or to actually modern-day Pakistan, all the way across to North Africa, 
into the area which we would now call the Sudan. Um, so it really is a large area. And you can see there Judah where the Hebrew people were sent back to. Uh, and Susa is where this story takes place. So if, if Haman had have acceded, it would have meant the complete extermination of all the Jews. It would have been their complete wiping out. So this is a real turning point for the, for the Hebrew people. And the Feast of Purim is, is talking about how this was stopped. So let's listen to Flick as she reads to us now. Chapter 2. Later, when King Xerxes' fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. Then the king's personal attendants proposed that a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful young women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti, this advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiachin, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Hegai. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Hegai, who had charge of the harem. She pleased him and won his favour. Immediately, he provided her with her beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven female attendants, selected from the king's palace, and moved her and her attendants into the best place in the harem. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Every day, he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. Before a young woman's turn came to go into King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women, six months with oil of myrrh and six with perfumes and cosmetics. And this is how she would go to the king. Anything she wanted was given her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go there and in the morning, return to another part of the harem to the care of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. When the turn came for Esther, the young woman Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle Abihail, to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Hegai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the harem, had suggested. And Esther won the favour of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the tenth month, the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women, 
and she won his favour and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. When the virgins were assembled a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, but Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality, just as Mordecai had told her to do, for she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions, as she had done when he was bringing her up. During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were impaled on poles. All this was recorded in the book of the Annals in the presence of the king. Well, thank you, Flick, for reading that. And sometimes, you know, when you jump into these chapters, it's so it can be so hard to get into it. But I think we will, just with a bit of time as we get used to these characters. And um, just let me wind back a bit to chapter one, just to give a bit of background, and then I'll go through chapter two, what, what, that we, what we've just read there. Because basically chapter one, which we didn't read, introduces um, King Xerxes and uh, his queen Vashti and describes how Xerxes was putting on display all his wealth and his, you know, um, possessions and food. And, um, and he had this festival that lasted 180 days, which is about five months, almost as long as we've been in lockdown. And he, he was showing off all, all of this, even they were drinking wine out of golden goblets, it says. And uh, he was running for two different groups of men, one for the elite of his entire empire and the second for the men it says, of the fortified compound of his capital in Susa. At the same time, there was a third banquet going on uh, that Queen Vashti was having separately um, for, for, for the women of the royal palace. And <clears throat> after Xerxes' celebrations had finished, he, he was completely drunk and he was, you know, still in a bad shape. So he, what he wanted to do was he called for his wife to come because she was extremely attractive and he wanted to parade her in front of all the, all the men at his celebration and he sent, for, he sent his eunuchs to go and get her because the eunuchs looked after the, his, his, the queen because he could trust them. But she refused to come. Vashti refused to come. She'd, she'd effectively snubbed her husband and said, no, thanks, I don't want to be paraded in front of your, your friends like that. It's terrible. And um, so she didn't respond to his command. And so he was so angry by this and humiliated that he, he consulted his advisors and said, what shall I do about this? And he consulted seven of his wise men from Persia. It makes me think of the wise men in the story of the birth of Jesus, you know, probably similar kind of characters. And they, they said that she should be basically banished from, from the palace and she should never be in his presence ever again because their logic was that if this news of this was to get out, then all the women in all of Persia would then uh, be uh, insubordinate to their husbands and not follow their instructions so the chapter ends of chapter one, before what we got to with Flick, comically, when the, 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 this kind of domestic fight that had happened among, in the palace between the royal couple becomes uh, an occasion for a full imperial edict. So Vashti is sent out and, and it, sort of excommunicated from the palace 
And he orders, the king orders every man to be a master of his household, a task at which the king who issues the edict really has proven to be a failure. One scholar, John Levinson, writes, the personal has become the political, or to state the reverse, the political has been exposed as nothing more than the personal on solid gold stilts. So it's supposed to be comic. It's supposed to be like, who is this king? He's obviously a bit of a dropkick, but he's also a horrific person. And that brings us to chapter two. So let's have a look at what chapters two said, because this is where the drama starts really picking up. Chapter 2 begins by talking about the replacing of Vashti. Xerxes seeks out a new beauty queen. Sometime between chapter 1 and chapter 2, apparently, historically speaking, Xerxes had tried to uh, take over the Greeks and he failed. And when he returns, as it says in um, verse 1 of chapter 2, he remembered what his queen, his ex-wife, had done in her rebellion. And so his attendants reminded him of their advice to replace her with a new, very attractive, but not defiant wife. Basically an upgrade model for him. And this is really the cliche of powerful men, isn't it? Uh, To upgrade their wives and get a younger, attractive model. It's kind of the Donald Trump move. And the king thinks this is a good idea. So the attendants and the commissioners around the empire... Uh, send out people to gather in young virgins, it says, women to be used by the king for his pleasure. And they're brought into Xerxes' harem. The word in Hebrew here translates to the house of women. And they live in the care and supervision of eunuchs who prepared them for sex with the king, basically. And after that, Xerxes would get rid of the women when he didn't need them anymore. So after a, a period of feeling like he'd lost control... Xerxes. He's sort of trying to get control back. But there's nothing really good or glamorous about this story, really. There's nothing... I mean, so far, Xerxes is using his power for authorised sexual slavery or sexual abuse. And he's using this method as a way to find his new queen. It's true that the king is going to decree that the eunuchs pamper them, but they're being pampered for his own sexual pleasure and interference. We've seen a lot in the news lately about, um, well, over the last year or so, about um, the New York stockbroker Jeffrey Epstein and his abuse of girls in his Manhattan mansion and also on his private island. And, you know, he lived a life of hedonism and power and self-indulgence and used his power to abuse women. And like Xerxes, um, Jeffrey Epstein used his women and wealth to show off to other powerful men, and that's what Xerxes is doing here. There have been men like this in positions of power all around the world for thousands of years. Xerxes is basically a serial rapist of beautiful women. Not only that, but he castrates men. I can see the eunuchs. So he treats people as commodities. He's a horrifically abusive king. Well, the next bit in verses 5 to 7 introduces Mordecai and Esther. In verse 5, we're introduced to a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai. Now... I don't know if you pick this up, but it's, it's not often that in the Old Testament the Jews are called Jews. Uh, we see that more in the New Testament. Often they're Israelites or the Hebrew people, but they're starting to be called Jews here because they were loyal to Judah. And Mordecai lived in the area where these virgins were being gathered for the king. He was from the tribe of Benjamin 
because it was his tribal ancestors who had been originally exiled from Judah. He was one of the many Jews who had originally decided to settle permanently, though, in, in Persia, even though King Cyrus had allowed their return. And when we come across his character, Mordecai, what we're supposed to do and, and, and see that he's from the tribe of Benjamin, we're to think back to the exile of the, of the Jews. And even though in this story, we're never going to come across God being explicitly mentioned. And that's one of the, the features of this book. When we're thinking about the exile and what it all means, we, we should be prompted to remember God's promises around the exile, around the restoration of his people after the exile. And so this character from the tribe of Benjamin, maybe God is on the move. Maybe God is present in this story. That's what we're to be thinking. Our hero Esther is introduced by her Hebrew name, Hadassah. Esther is her Babylonian name. It comes from the Babylonian goddess of love and war. While in exile, the Jewish minority needed to conform to the surrounding culture, either by compulsion or by necessity just to fit in. So they took on localized names. Esther was an orphan. She became an orphan when her parents died and she's going to become an orphan again when she's taken away from Mordecai, who's like her adopted father. As an orphan, Esther, in a way, personifies the exiled Jews, the exiled Israelites who have no father or mother. They have no home. But see, the thing is, God loves orphans. Psalm 10 verse 14 describes God as the helper of the fatherless. Hosea 14 verse 3 says, For in you, Lord, the fatherless find compassion. And Mordecai and Xerxes are going to become like opposite father figures in a way to Esther. Mordecai takes Esther into his home to care for her. Xerxes takes her for his own selfish gratification and abuse. Well, in verses 8 to 20 in chapter 2, we see that Esther thrives as she's taken into the harem as one of the beautiful beautiful virgins for Xerxes. Hegai, the eunuch, is made in charge of the young virgins. And Esther really impresses him. She pleased him and won his favour. So Hegai gave her a special treatment with beauty products and food. Twelve months of treatment, actually, it says. And he promotes her to pride of place in the harem. She has an attractive personality and she wins the favour of all the people she meets. She's a Jew. She's a Jew, just like Mordecai is a Jew, her uncle. But on her uncle's advice, she keeps her religious identity a secret. See, Mordecai is worried for his niece Esther. And every day, it says, he walked up and down the palace courtyard where the harem was staying to find out her latest news. She's now on the inside of the palace. She's close to power. And she reminds us a little bit of Joseph and Daniel, two other Jews from Israel's history who found themselves moving closer in proximity and influence to the king. They also experience God's favour along the way. The difference, of course, is that unlike Daniel and Joseph, Esther keeps her identity as a Jew a secret. And not only that, but she ends up breaking all kinds of Hebrew laws in the Torah as she is forced into the harem and has to sleep with the pagan king. Not that that she has any say in it. This is all very extravagant and it's all very tragic. The young virgins are pampered to get them ready for the king. Exfoliation, moisturisation, 
expensive scented oils and myrrh, six months with spices and cosmetics. And after sex with the king, the eunuchs take the girls to a second harem where they wait to be called for again. This was a weird Persian law, actually, called the Law of Women, and shows how strange the Persian legal system was. And Esther is full of very strange laws that will come up a few times. Esther's only going to reveal her full identity in this context as a Jew much later when she's Queen of Persia in Chapter 7. She has to do this. She's in an anti-Semitic empire. (laughs) It becomes her turn to go to the king's bed and she has the choice to take stuff with her any, any possession with her or anything she wants, she can take with her. But she chooses to take, to take nothing. And she goes there empty-handed. But nevertheless, everyone responds to her positively, especially the king, who was attracted to her more than anyone else, more than any of the other women. And after Xerxes chooses Esther as his queen, she is given the royal crown that the defiant Vashti had refused to wear, and they get married. And he declared a holiday throughout all the provinces. Well, the the chapter ends with Mordecai, who'd been hanging around the king's gate, overhearing a plot to assassinate Xerxes. So he passes on the information of the plot to Esther so that she could tell the king. And when she tells him, she says, it was actually my uncle Mordecai, who, uh, who told me, which put him in the good books with Xerxes. And the conspirators were publicly executed by being impaled on poles. And so the chapter ends, this exhausting and dramatic chapter ends with the incident being recorded in the royal records. Well, what are we to make of this chapter? First thing is that I want to address issues of concern because when you're listening to a story like this that's in the Bible and maybe you've not even read it before and you're not even aware of it, you you know that there's stuff in the Bible that's pretty full on but you wouldn't necessarily expect a story like this. It's worth addressing these concerns because it actually helps us to think about what God is teaching us through this amazing book. Some people tell this story of Esther, like it's kind of a Cinderella story, a kind of a Pygmalion, My Fair Lady, rags to riches story. But really, as the scholar um, Marion Taylor points out, the women in this story are completely voiceless. They are being violated for the king's pleasure and then discarded, prepared by castrated men who'd been abused for the service of the king. These virgins and these eunuchs are possessions. They're commodities for the king. And he does not treat them as human beings. And what we are meant to see here is a contrast with the depravity of pagan culture and long for God to intervene and bring an end to the suffering for his people. We are meant to ask the question, where is God in the story of Esther? The 19th century suffragette, the English suffragette and uh, evangelical justice advocate, Josephine Butler, she argued that Jesus was present with victims of exploitation in the Bible stories of suffering, as he is with victims of exploitation to this day. 
She said that Christians should listen to the, to the silenced cries of victims of sex trafficking and abuse and respond as Jesus would, with compassion, care and healing. One of the great Christian justice organisations that operates in Australia and around the world is called the International Justice Mission, or short for IJM for short. And my friend Jacob Sarkadi works with them, and they're the he's he's got amazing stories to tell. They are the the largest global anti-slavery organisation, and their whole purpose is to be the voice of the silent and traumatised victims, and to fight against and expose human trafficking and human commodification and to release people from slavery. What we're seeing here is a story of, of, of women being trafficked. And so it's horrific. Now, some Christian teachers and writers have interpreted Esther a different way as a, and, and have described her as a kind of glamorised sex worker. She's kind of like Julia Roberts in Pretty Woman, or Audrey Hepburn in Breakfast at Tiffany's, you know, a, a nice, warm, uh, uh, but really um, a, a prostitute, a glorified prostitute. She seems to do everything that is required of her by the men around her, and she puts up no resistance. Is she compliant? Perhaps she enjoys being pampered and part of the harem. Uh, the controversial American uh, pastor and preacher Mark Driscoll put it this way in his sermon on Esther called Esther, Princess Whore or something more. He said, Esther grows up in a very lukewarm religious home as an orphan raised by her uncle. Beautiful, she allows men to tend to her needs and make her decisions. Her behavior is sinful and she spends around a year in the spa getting doled up to lose her virginity with the pagan king like hundreds, hundreds of other women. She performs so well that he chooses her as his favourite. Today, her story would be a beautiful young woman living in a major city, allows men to cater to her needs, undergoes lots of beauty treatment to look at her best, and lands a really rich guy whom she meets on The Bachelor and wows with an amazing night in bed. She's simply a person without any character until her own neck is on the line and then we see her rise up to save the life of her people when she is converted to a real faith in God. Now, the problem with this kind of interpretation, of course, is that it is classic victim blaming. It's suggesting that she had power and agency. Uh, next week uh, in the service, I'm, I've got an interview with a friend of mine, Joseph Emmanuel, who's a Persian Anglican priest. He's got an amazing testimony of how he converted. He was an academic in Islamic law. Anyway, you'll hear the story next week. But Joseph points out, he pointed out to me after the interview, unfortunately it's not in the interview, but I'll tell you, that um, you know, people who have never lived as a religious minority in a violent culture where the dominant culture is majority is persecuting you have no idea what it's like to, to live in those kind of contexts, to be in situations that are beyond your control. And that's what we're to see here. Esther was a victim of sex trafficking who used an adaptation strategy for survival. She fitted to the realities of her circumstances. She's in a horrible situation and she finds a way to use what one person calls the arts of alternative resistance or what uh, uh, the theologian John Henry Yoder calls revolutionary subordination. She finds any means possible to survive and thrive. And in some ways, what we're to see with Esther, as we read through this story, is that she's undergoing suffering 
in order to save her people. And in that sense, she's a type of Christ who also suffered in humiliation. He was violated to the point of death and he died to save not just the Jews, but he died for all those who put their faith in him. Well, what are we to learn in terms of our own personal walk with Jesus? While Esther is a victim, she's also compromised. And this is the problem with sin. Our doctrine of sin says that sin is personal and it's also systematic. Sin has infected society so much that it is impossible to avoid being implicated. For Esther to enter the harem, she had to compromise herself and break many of the laws of Moses. And we can't be too critical of this. She's in an an impossible situation. And she finds a way to serve God in the mess. And God's grace shines through. He's able to use her to protect his people. Melbourne um, pastor and theologian uh, Peter Adam makes a point in his book on Esther, a great book, that we should not think of God's perfect plan for our lives. It's a, often Christians like to use that phrase, my, what, what is God's perfect plan for my life? But he says it's better to think of God's gracious plan. God's plan is not defeated by our sin or the sin that infects us or the sin that is done to us. Romans 8.28 famously says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Christians worship a God who forgives sins, who sees the mess we find ourselves in and does not hold that against us. Even when we turn against him, he continues to love us and open his arms and welcome us back. Peter Adam says that God turns all our disasters for good. Think of Zacchaeus, who worked his whole life as a taxman for the Roman Empire, but Jesus turned his life around and he became an inspiring story of grace and forgiveness and blessing to others. Peter the Apostle denied Jesus three times and Jesus made him leader of the church. In a similar way, God used Esther despite her messed up situation a powerless young woman, part of a minority group, left behind in Persia when most of her people had returned home, but God had not forgotten her. God heard her prayers and enabled her to thrive. God could have chosen any way to save his people, but he chose Esther. And so for our discipleship, we're to see ourselves in Esther in some ways. We are all compromised people. We all have messy lives. We've all been sinned against. We all have times when we are overwhelmed by our own sin and shame. But we shouldn't make the mistake of thinking that God could never use us to achieve his good and glorious purposes. This is God's perfect love and grace. And as we continue to read through Esther, be inspired by this young orphan Hebrew girl to put yourself forward to serve God.